Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Spanish Conquest. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Conquest of the Caribbean Islands. Following Columbus's voyages, Spain controlled much of the Americas for the next hundred years. This area was called New Spain, and Spanish soldier explorers were called conquistadors. Columbus's second voyage was far larger than his first. In 1493, Columbus landed in the Lesser Antilles and then Puerto Rico with 17 ships carrying 1,200 men and priests. After scouting Puerto Rico, Columbus returned to Hispaniola to find the 40-man garrison he left behind was slaughtered by Tainos led by Canoba after the Spanish garrison had attempted to rape native women and enslave the men. Columbus left his son Diego in charge of a new outpost called Isabella and then traveled to Cuba and Jamaica. In his absence, another war erupted between the Spanish and the Taino as the newcomers again attempted to take native women and force the men to labor in the gold mines for them. Columbus decided to enslave the Indians and force them to pan for gold, and he also wanted to sell them as chattel or property in European markets. In February 1495, he sent 500 Tainos to Spain to be sold as slaves, though 200 died in the passage. A month later, in the interior of Hispaniola, tens of thousands of Tainos faced 200 Spaniards in the large-pitched battle of Vegel Real in March of 1495. This resulted in Taino defeat. Their slings and arrows were no match for mounted Spanish warriors armed with swords and steel armor. Tainos also feared the large Spanish war dogs that tore apart Taino warriors. Between 1495 to 1496, Hispaniola was subdued and all of the survivors were enslaved. It is difficult to get firm numbers, but it is believed that about 300,000 Tainos lived on Hispaniola in 1492, but by 1540, there were less than a thousand, and by 1600, the Spaniards declared the Taino extinct but we now know that this is not true, since over half of the Spaniards there took Taino women as forced wives, fathering a new race of mestizos. Modern genetic testing suggests that most Puerto Ricans and other Caribbean populations have some connection to old Taino lines. This conquest, however, was not just two-sided, Spanish versus Taino. In fact, Spaniards rebelled against their leaders for not letting them be more brutal and for not allowing them to constantly hunt for gold. In addition, some Taino leaders worked against other groups in the hopes of extracting favorable conditions for themselves. As I mentioned, the Taino suffered greatly, and the Spaniards attempted to aggressively settle the island. But between 1493 to 1504, about two-thirds of the settlers died. In 1508 alone, 45 ships made the journey from Spain to the New World and back. So combined with the Taino and Spanish settler death, the Spanish needed more slaves to labor the gold fields. So, in 1505, the first Spanish-speaking African slaves arrived on the island of Hispaniola. In 1508, the Spanish began settling Puerto Rico, which had roughly 32,000 Taino people on the island. Ponce de Leon, of Fountain of Youth fame, was chosen to be the governor of the island, and he ruthlessly enslaved the population, so that by 1530, there were only 1,148 Tainos alive. 
The conquest of Cuba took from 1511 to 1514, mostly because Cuba did not have much gold, and thus the Spanish were not as interested in conquering it. They just wanted to raid it for slaves. The native people, the Arawak, fought the conquistadors led by Diego de Velasquez. And as a result, the Arawak went from 112,000 people to just 19,000 by 1519, and that number dropped again to 2,000 by 1600. This is the massive scale of death that the Spanish brought with them. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Fall of the Aztecs. Hernan Cortes is arguably the most famous conquistador of his age. Cortes was the younger son of minor hidalgo, or aristocracy, and did not have much property due to primogeniture. Frustrated in Spain, Cortes decided to try his luck in the New World. He served in the conquest of Cuba and acquired mines, plantations, and ambition to increase his wealth and status. The Spanish had been slave raiding the Central American coast for natives to work their land, and Cortes heard rumors from the slaves of a rich empire in the inland area. The governor of Cuba forbade Cortes to journey there, but Cortes ignored his orders, and in 1519, he left Havana with 11 ships and about 630 men, including a few women servants, carpenters, Arawak natives, and some free and enslaved Africans. They had with them 16 horses, 30 crossbows, 12 arquebuses, primitive firearms, 14 cannons, and cotton armor woven by Cuban native women, as well as steel armor for the knights. So as we can see, it was not all gunpowder weapons that won the day. Cortes first went to the island of Cozumel, where he picked up a Spanish priest who had been shipwrecked eight years earlier called Geronimo del Aguilar. Cortes then landed at Ponochachan and defeated the local Mayans in a battle. As a result, the Mayan chiefs gave Cortes 20 women as slaves, one of whom was called Malincin, but is now referred to as La Malincha in Mexico. Between Aguilar and La Malincha, Cortes had two great interpreters who knew the Mayan and Nahatal languages. These interpreters were critical for building alliances that Cortes would use to conquer the Aztecs. Cortes then landed near Veracruz and was welcomed by representatives of the Aztec emperor Moctezuma. He was given gifts but told to advance no further. Cortes also needed to secure the loyalty of his men, so he built a small settlement and had them elect him captain general, thus freeing him from Velasquez's authority. Cortes allied with the nearby Totnac tribe and took Aztec tax collectors prisoner and marched towards the capital of Tenochtitlan. Along the way, Moctezuma continued to send gold and cloth gifts in an attempt to stop the Spanish, but this only increased their ambition and greed. Cortes still had disloyal men in his midst, and they planned to take a ship and flee to Cuba. So in order to stop this, Cortes beached and then scuttled his ships to reinforce his men's commitment to the conquest. There was now no going back. As Cortes marched, his army grew, passing through 200 different towns, and Cortes allied with the various natives, including the powerful Tlaxcalan tribe, who were blood enemies of the Aztecs. However, some native tribes attempted to resist. At Chulon, 
La Malincha uncovered a conspiracy to massacre the Spanish. She told Cortez, and in turn, he massacred the population of about 3,000 people total. On November 8, 1519, Cortez entered Tenochtitlan with other 250,000 people, making it four times the size of Seville. Cortez reportedly told the Aztecs, quote, I and my companions suffer from a disease of the heart which can only be cured with gold. End quote. Moctezuma gave the Spaniards gifts, and according to one native source, the Spaniards, quote, picked up the gold and fingered it like monkeys. They seemed to be transported by joy, as if their hearts were illuminated and made new. Their bodies swelled with greed, and their hunger was ravenous. They hungered like pigs for gold. End quote. Despite his generosity, Moctezuma was tricked and became Cortez's prisoner after some of his men were killed on the coast, and he remained prisoner until May 1520. In April 1520, Cortez learned that a large Spanish force under De Navarez had landed in Mexico and was headed for them. In a night attack, Cortez ambushed Narvaez and defeated his force, but then promised the defeated Spaniards gold and many joined his command, swelling his troop size to 1,300 men, 96 horses, with 2,000 Tlaxcalan allies. When Cortez returned, he found that the men he had left behind had committed a great massacre near the Aztec temple, angering the population. On June 30, 1520, the Aztecs rebelled en masse, and Cortez forced Moctezuma to speak to his people, but the king was stoned to death before the Aztecs attacked the Spanish. The Spanish were pelted with rocks and obsidian, and many were wounded. Cortez and his men and his allies attempted to flee at night, but many bridges had been removed, and there was just one causeway to the shore. After crossing a third of the way, the Aztecs were alerted and began attacking Cortez's men from canoes. It was a desperate battle, and the Spaniards barely made it back to shore. Many lost their lives, and drowned due to the weight of the armor and the fact that they were weighed down by gold. The Spaniards called it La Nocta Trista, the Night of Sorrows. The Aztecs continued their pursuit, and a large battle of Umtumba was fought. The Spanish again were nearly destroyed, except for the heroics of their allies, the firmness of the Spanish infantry, and the Spanish cavalry, led by Cortes, charging home again and again. In total, at the Battle of Atumba, the Spanish lost 860 men and the Tlaxcalans 1,000. The Spanish took refuge among their allies, with just 440 men and 20 horses left. During this time, they rested and built 13 small ships armed with cannons, Cortes learning not to cede the water to Aztec dominance. With the help of La Malincha, Cortes got another 10,000 native allies from nearby tribes. At the same time, the Aztecs were stricken with a smallpox plague that lasted 70 days, killing thousands. By August of 1521, Cortes and his men laid siege to Tenochtitlan for 85 days. Cortes severed the aqueducts that brought water, and another pestilence ensued. Using his ships and allies, Cortes bludgeoned the Aztecs, and the entire city was destroyed. The remnants were sacked, the leaders hanged, and the priests fed to the war dogs. Afterwards, 
the survivors were forbidden from living in the new city that Cortez built, modern-day Mexico City. There is an interesting note about memory. To this day, there is much contention in Mexico over the memory of La Malincha. To those of more indigenous backgrounds, she is a traitor and a temptress who sold out her people. But to those with more Iberian or Spanish ancestry, she is seen as the mother of Mexico and her son with Cortez, Martin, as the first mestizo or mixed-race Spanish in Mexico lineage. The fight over her memory illustrates the long arm of history and the fact that disagreements about the past and the future of any given country is not just an American phenomenon. Please advance to the next slide entitled Fall of the Inca. Like the Aztecs, years of turmoil preceded the arrival of the Spanish. A brutal civil war was waged in 1527 over who would rule the Inca. An epidemic of infectious diseases also wiped out almost half of the Inca in the decade before the Spanish invaded. In 1531, Francisco Pizarro and his force of 180 conquistadors arrived in Cajamarca, where the Inca king, Atualapa, was resting after a great victory over his rival claimant to the throne. Pizarro met with Atualapa, and the Inca king invited the Spaniards in and offered refreshments. Pizarro then offered the king a Bible, but the Inca threw it to the floor after refusing to swear an oath to the Spanish king. The next day, enraged at such an act, the Spanish ambushed an unarmed retinue of 6,000 followers of Altuapa and butchered more than 2,000 of them. The Spanish demanded that they would release the king only when a room was filled to the ceiling with gold and two more rooms with silver. After months of captivity, from February to May, the tribute was finally finished, and all the gold was melted into bars. The Spanish then went back on their promise. They forced the king to convert to Christianity, and then garroted him to death. Pizarro then created a puppet ruler called Tupac Hualapa, but he died shortly after, and a full-scale Inca rebellion erupted in 1535. For a year, the siege of Cuzco raged, and the Inca managed to wipe out relief columns sent from Lima, but they could not dislodge the Spanish from the ancient city. By 1537, the siege was lifted, and the Spanish embarked on a 40-year period of conquest before finally defeating the Inca in the mid-1570s. Pizarro did not live to see this, as a power struggle between himself and another Spaniard led to his death in 1541. I won't go into much detail, but over the course of 40 years, the Spanish had, by 1540, subdued the Mayans of the Yucatan and many other peoples in modern-day Colombia. Many natives were forcibly resettled into Spanish towns to control the population. But not everyone succumbed, and many fled into the interior of South America and continued to fight for their independence. Bolivia is a good illustration of this, as it is viewed as more ethnically indigenous than other areas, and it also accounts for the unique politics of their country. Now, we may ask ourselves, how were outnumbered Spanish conquistadors able to defeat such centralized, populist, and formidable native empires? Well, the first is guns, both handheld firearms and cannon. While Spanish arquebusiers were inaccurate, they were terrifying to natives who had never seen such flashes of gunpowder before. The second key was germs. 
number one European weapon, which wiped out tens of thousands of natives. Next, steel, swords and armor, and compared to native stone-edge weapons or obsidian, these were deadly and could last many years. Lastly, domesticated animals. Europeans had horses, which were a major psychological advantage, as well as attack dogs. Natives did have smaller animals, but they never used them in warfare. Not pictured on the screen, and probably one of the other greatest weapons that the Spanish had, were native allies. Without tens of thousands of natives helping to fight against the Inca and the Aztecs, the Spaniards would never have been successful. And this process will be repeated throughout the continents of South, Central, and North America for hundreds of years. Please advance to the next slide, entitled El Requerimento. When news reached Spain that there was a lot of death and destruction going on in the New World, the Pope and King became worried, and so they instituted what was called El Requerimento, or the Requirement. This was a proclamation to give to natives that stated that they were now subjects of the King and Pope, and it demanded their immediate surrender or else suffer pillaging, death, and slavery. Theoretically, it had to be attested to by witnesses, and this theoretically gave the conflict a papal sanction and fit in with the Christian concept of just war. However, this was heavily abused by conquistadors, and according to the historian Louis Hanke, quote, The requirement was read to trees and empty huts when no Indians were to be found. Captains muttered its phrases into their beards on the edge of sleeping settlements or even a league away before starting the formal attack. At other times, some leather-tongued Spaniard hurled its Saronist phrases after the Indians had fled into the mountains. Once, it was read in camp before the soldiers beat the drum of war. Ship captains sometimes had the document read from the ship before they even approached the island, and at night, they would send out enslaving expeditions who leaders would shout the traditional Castilian war cry of Santiago and then read the requirement before attacking the village. End quote. The point is that this is heavily abused and led to tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. New Spain's settlements included hundreds of Catholic missions, and thousands of Catholic missionaries traveled to the region to evangelize among the natives. Sometimes they resorted to brutal treatment to force conversions. And the point is that while the Spaniards killed tens of thousands and enslaved even more and forced the conversion on all the survivors, the legend of Spanish brutality was often exaggerated by Spanish-European rivals who propagated what was called the Black Legend of Spanish cruelty in the New World. They posited that if they were one day the colonizers, they would not treat the natives as terribly as the Spanish. But as we will see, this will not come to pass. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Discovery of the Mississippi. Hernan de Soto sought gold and riches in a vast empire he dreamed up, like most conquistadors. He was a sadist, known for his brutality during various campaigns in Central America and Peru. Some said he routinely hunted Indians on horseback, but ultimately he launched an expedition of 600 men which rampaged through present-day Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas. 
DeSoto extorted food to feed his troops. He brought 300 irons with him to enslave various tribes, and he took hostages in Cortez's and Pizarro's similar style. But he never found the gold or silver he was looking for. Ultimately, he died of disease during the expedition, and his body was thrown into the Mississippi to hide his fate. The great native proponent, Delacasas, once wrote, quote, We do not doubt, but that he was buried in hell for such wickedness. End quote. Half of the expedition made its way back by September 1543, but the war had reduced many great native towns, and long-term disease devastated the Mississippi Valley long after the Spanish withdrew. This resulted in what anthropologists call ethnogenesis, the emergence of new ethnic groups and identities from the consolidations of many peoples disrupted by invasions of European peoples, animals, and microbes. So the point is that today when we think of native tribes like the Cherokee, the Creek, the Seminole, and other groups from this region, those are all the result of ethnogenesis, the survivors of the old tribes now lost to history, destroyed by disease, in DeSoto's ravages. To illustrate this further, when the French explored the region of southern Arkansas and northern Louisiana in 1600, they counted only five villages where DeSoto had found 30. Please advance to the next slide entitled Coronado. Francisco Vasquez de Coronado led an expedition from 1539 to 1542, and he was enticed by previous expeditions and extravagant claims. All of these were merely rumors to cover up destruction and incompetence. Regardless, Coronado led a large expedition to conquer the fabled Seven Cities, but what we actually now know is that he was told of these cities' existence by an old West African slave who had remembered an old myth from Africa and then transported with him to the New World. Regardless, Coronado led his army north and conquered the Pueblo people of New Mexico and Arizona, but he found none of the riches he wanted. Determined not to waste his investment, he pushed north. To this day, numerous native tribes still hold old oral traditions that tell the story of the destruction of their peoples and history, and it is a testament to the long tradition of oral history of native peoples. Coronado continued to move north. He crossed Texas, Oklahoma, and went into Kansas, finally reaching the Great Plains. In the process, he reaped untold destruction through war, pillage, rape, and disease. This would be one of the final campaigns led by the Spanish conquistadors in an attempt to conquer new territory. Coronado's forces came home empty-handed, and the Spanish king and pope were livid. The Spanish king was also worried about losing control of men of ambition seeking wealth. He was also upset about the bad publicity that his kingdom was receiving over such large-scale death and destruction, and he forbade future expeditions, tapping the Franciscan monks to lead the religious conquest of native peoples. In addition, reformers like Bartolomé de las Casas attempted to publicize the plight of natives and seek to change the empire. But as we will see, despite such noble efforts, natives and soon African slaves 
would continue to suffer in the Great Spanish Empire. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you are all making smart decisions and staying safe. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.